A bright piece of our family, the host Raheem Shabazz, and we are here for another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Marcy Lee, and today we have a special guest, ladies and gentlemen. Her name is Dr. Carmen Johnson, and she was falsely accused and sentenced for residential mortgage fraud. Native of Maryland was sentenced to 57 months in prison, followed by five years. And she is home now. And she is, in addition to being a doctor, she's a community activist and humanitarian. And we are here today to discuss why she was targeted, falsely accused, and the aftermath of that situation. So, how are you? I am doing well. I am getting better every day. I'm I'm healing. Um, I'm certainly better than what I was uh, six months ago and a year ago and two years ago when I uh, came home. So I'm I'm healing. I'm I'm getting there. All right. As a former kid who spearheaded a campaign. Um, against homelessness, right? You was illegally uh, in prison for, uh, they said illegal foreclosure was, you, do, in your opinion, do you think that you was politically targeted because of your work on advocating on behalf of the homeless? Um, I was emphatically uh, politically hit in my opinion, and I was spearheading um, a movement uh, to get a moratorium to freeze the foreclosures that was going on in the state of Maryland. Um, However, the the illegal foreclosures were going on all over the United States, but my campaign was in the state of Maryland because I was the housing chair for the state conference in NAACP. So my concern was what was happening in the state of, of Maryland, which was the the main people that was being targeted was people that looked like us. Absolutely. So if, if you don't mind, doctor, um, and I want to thank you again for being here today as well. Uh, your story is very riveting. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people should hear and know more about. But if you could, for, okay, from your... Could you explain to the audience your relationship to how you got involved? Because from what I understand, you had a lending company and you were doing business with other folks who were, um, they're named your co-conspirators. Could you explain a little bit how you got swept up in this situation? So I had a for-profit company that uh, taught, um, well, actually before that, I had a profit company that we offered the services of credit restoration, debt arbitration, financial planning, preparation for bankruptcy, rehabilitation after bankruptcy, identity fraud, and we would also pay off people debts on their credit reports. So we would call their creditors and we would do settlements and then we would pay by phone. We would pay, you know, right then and there. And then the, uh, the client would pay us back monthly. 
or back then we would just send our bill to the, the, the title company and we would get paid at closing. And that was that was like in 2000, 2001, 2002. It was it was back then. And um, and then I started a nonprofit, a 501c3, which taught financial literacy to elementary school kids all the way up to senior citizens. So we would go into uh, private schools and also public schools and we would teach financial literacy. Um, with the, the for-profit company, my main clients was the big banks, the mortgage companies and real estate agents all over the United States. My only competition was Susie Orman, who's backed by TransUnion. Oh, but really? she was my only competition as far as financial literacy is concerned. Um, so in 2007 is based on what I've read in, in the documentation. In 2007, these um, two Africans were realtors and I didn't have a problem with doing business with them because I did business with so many realtors, with so many banks, with so many mortgage companies. So it wasn't no big deal. They appeared to be very polished, very professional. Um, they both work for um, high end real estate companies. I can't remember the names. I don't know if it was Long and Foster or whoever it was, but they work for, you know, big, you know, real estate companies. I mean, excuse me, real, yeah, real estate agencies. And um, so I didn't have an issue in questioning what they were doing. Once you left out my door, I didn't have any control over what was happening. So um, the first raid happened to me um, in 2011. And I wasn't sure what that was about or, or what the situation was. Um, however, my attorney and I, we went to the, the public, uh, the um, prosecutor's office, and they said that, that no laws were broken, no statutes or codes were violated or anything like that, but they would go through my books one more time. And um, and I was relieved. I was I, I was OK with that. It, 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 this is this is the question that I have when you talk about the illegal you were requesting a moratorium. Was mm -hmm. that for like predatory lending? Like when you're talking about illegal foreclosures, were you talking about like predatory lending? Like what capacity? I was, I, I was talking about all of it. I was at, at based on your question, I was talking about the predatory lending was one thing, but also the fact of the matter was the illegal foreclosure. So it went bigger than that. Because with they they needed the predatory lending to get the loans. However, I was mainly talking about the illegal foreclosures that was happening in the state of Maryland. Okay. Now let me ask you something. Once um, they looked at the books and they said that you didn't, then they came back time and wanted charging you with the co-conspirators. Because I kept asking for my money back because they had freezed my bank accounts and I started asking for my money back and everybody was saying to not ask for money back and to leave it alone. But I knew I, I did nothing wrong. So it was like a couple of years later. By that time, I became, you know, the the housing chair for the, the state of Maryland NAACP. So that's when 
some very powerful people started calling me, asking me to go back on the news to say that uh, I had made a mistake that there was no illegal foreclosures that was going on in the state of Maryland. But I couldn't lie because there was illegal foreclosures going on in the state of Maryland. I wouldn't recant my story. I, I, you know, I was all over the news trying to get a moratorium to freeze the foreclosures. So it was past the subprime mortgages. Uh, it was past that. It was about the fact that the the judges was allowing these uh, mortgage companies and banks to come in with lost note affidavits. They didn't have the, the, the promissory notes to legally foreclose on the, the properties because those promissory notes was bundled, bundled up and traded on Wall Street. Um, the, the, the banks and the judges were in bed together. I mean, it just it ran deeper than just the subprime lending that hit our community, not to mention a lot of our people were placed in subprime lending that had credit scores of seven and 800. And I knew that because, you know, they were some of my clients. So um, they didn't deserve to be in subprime uh, mortgages or those special mortgages or those creative mortgages. And not to mention also, I wasn't an advocate for home buying. I, I wasn't if you didn't have the money to to pay for your house outright. Um, I felt like you didn't need to be purchasing a home. Not to mention, I also felt like you should. The main goal was to save your money and to not invest in anyone else, because I understood that you really don't own your home. So it it ran deeper. So what I hear you saying is that all although you were charged with fraud, it sounds like you're saying that they were involved in fraud and also uh, corruption on the other side. And so you were bringing attention to that. Right. You was a whistleblower, basically. So let me ask you something. This all happened during, um, what was it, 2008, during the um, housing crisis, am I correct? Right. Well, that's when the the feds said that if this what what I did or what I was part of was in 2007, 2008. But I wasn't part of any of that. I was put into a real live mortgage bank and conspiracy to commit wire fraud case. They those 14 Africans actually did the crime and those 14 Africans did not take a plea. They, well, excuse me, they took the plea. I didn't take the plea. I went to trial. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't imagine saying I did something when I did not do something. And not to mention, both head uh, Africans got on the stand in, this, in the transcripts where they both said she, she's not part of our Tanzanian community, nor did she know about our scam, nor did she financially benefit. And then one of them said, but she worked on our client's credit. And the other one said, but she knew that we were realtors. And that was the end of that thing. I know I was found guilty on 24 counts and the documentation sitting in trial that they showed through trial. I knew nothing about the documents, nothing. From, from some of the research that we've done, I, I, 
I read that you didn't actually do the loans or have any part of it, but you were charged with, what's that? Oh, okay. You were charged with creating false credit histories and using false ID information. If you had nothing to do with the processing of this, why did they charge you with that? Is that something that your co-conspirators did and they just attached it to you? Like, how did that end up? They attached it to me. Okay. So let me ask you something, because I know with the criminal justice system, the main thing is to get an individual to plead guilty. And um, those that charge as conspirators, it seemed like they opted in to do that so that they could receive a lesser sentence. Did any of them serve any substantial prison time or was they given probation? I have no idea what they served or what the situation was. What I do know is that they needed my conviction in order to get a lighter sentence. I am aware of that because that came up at sentencing, at my sentencing hearing. It's the fact that they needed my conviction to get a lower sentence. Mm. All right. But I want to go back to um, the, the young lady, Marcy. Is that your name? Yes. Marcy. My company was a member of Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. So with my company being a, a member, and as it, back then it wasn't very many people of color, a member of Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian, they had something called the E-Oscar system. And in the E-Oscar system, anyone, usually realtors and mortgage companies had the E-Oscar system. And of course I had the E-Oscar system, but I also had the software to transmit the Equifax TransUnion and, and Experian because I was a member. But with that E-Oscar system, they could go in and update any company's trade lines. Mm. And I want to get all into it because most people, the average person don't understand it, but I was a member. And even Experian got on the stand and it's in the transcripts that said that nothing was wrong with the trade lines. So you 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 falsely accused of these charges, found guilty at trial, uh, subsequently you go to prison. Now I understand, you know, you was a prominent member in the community, not only this tarnish your relationship, but now you face with doing this prison time and you 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 did the time um you, you you come home now you're in the process of trying to get a presidential pardon i want to talk a little bit about that before i i talk about that um in prison um you you was open about your um your mental illness dealing with uh post-traumatic stress um, was you receiving any treatment in prison? So did you receive some when, when you came out and how? Yeah. Um, so which question do you want me to answer first? I know that was a, that was a, a, a big question. <laughs> um, with you going to prison and having to, um, do illness, how, how was that for you? I mean, I, I still deal with trauma. I mean, I was traumatized when I got there. Number one, the love um, that I 
have for the state of Maryland and the way the state of Maryland did me, it hurt me to the core. That's mm -hmm. one. And then the love that I have for America um, and, and the way the Department of Justice did me, it, it hurt me to the core. As far as my reputation, it may be a few people, which I, I don't care what you think, but it may be a few people that may think that my reputation is tarnished, but there's a whole lot of people that don't think that. And, you know, somehow my sisters who live in South Carolina um, was able to, you know, plug in my cell phone and they called everybody in my cell phone and they had the courtroom packed and jammed mm -hmm. at my sentencing. Mm -hmm. Trial, I was really the only one that was there. Number one, I'm not a crybaby. Number two, I really didn't tell people what was going on with me because the most important thing was saving these black families from illegal foreclosures that was going on in the community. So I really didn't, I put my needs to the side and stayed focused on the mission. And that was to save these families. And I saved over 800 and something families from illegal foreclosures. So that's number one. Number two, um, the trauma, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I, you know, I still, I'm still suffering. Uh, mental health is real in the, in the, the black community and the, the native American community. Like, you know, what they've done to us from generation to generation. I mean, mental health is real. Um, I, uh, have, uh, therapy sessions once a week for the last two years since I, uh, been home and, you know, because of COVID, we, we do it by zoom now. I also have a holistic healer uh, that I meet with once a week. Um, I'm also a practicing Buddhist, a scholar of mental science, science of the mind and, and uh, metaphysics. Um, so um, I rely on frequencies and energy and, and things of that nature. While I was going through this process, I, you know, thought that, you know, God or the universe had somehow had betrayed me. And, you know, I've always done things the right way. Mm. I look back now and I've realized is there's a reason for everything and that I was ultimately always protected with the universe and with the ancestors. Even when I couldn't remember my name, I was being protected. Even when I was being drugged on the floor by those 20 white guards and strangled me until I passed out, I was still being protected. And, and I think back about that and, um, and I take that experience and, and, and somehow, you know, my book will be finished in February. Somehow this will help others. And the, the most important thing is to stop taking pleas for crimes you didn't commit is a reason why the Department of Justice have a 98% rate. Mm -hmm. it, most of these people are, are not guilty or they just broke a statute or, or a code and, and, and not a law. And, or they had one little small crack rock and they got 30 years. Wow. You know, you know but- Dr. Johnson, I have to say like, oh, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I want to you know, before we move, in the reporting that I read uh, um, that you sent over and some of the online articles, it was talking about that she was actually drugged 
um, while you was incarcerated. So you couldn't even be in your right mind to even attend trial, but they still held it out and they still found you guilty. Talk about that. I was court ordered to, uh, while I was in pretrial, to, to go to their psychiatrist and to go to their psychologist because I ultimately had a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. and, um, to be blamed for something you did not do and to be blamed by a group that you are ultimately outnumbered by and to be blamed and you are with one of the most powerful black organizations like the NAACP and I'm not standing with me, it blew my mind ultimately. And to have paid attorneys and them one minute, you know, saying we're going to get through this, we're going to fight, we're going to fight. Then next thing you know, they get their marching orders, press this woman for a plea. It will blow, will blow your mind. Not to mention I was being followed by white men. I was being followed by the bank investigators. I was being followed by the feds. I was being run off the road. They was coming in and out my home. Um, they was calling me in the middle of the night, calling me the N-word. It made me think about Malcolm X when on the Spike Lee movie and he would stand at his window with his gun. Well, I didn't have a gun, but I was standing at my window at night to my legs would hurt watch these white men running around my yard, you know, running in and out my yard. And I would see them, I would be looking right at them. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like it blew my mind. It blew my mind. It would blow any man's mind. And I'm, I'm female and I was by myself. I was alone, but I had to put to the side what was going on with me and continue to save as many fam black families that I could possibly save. And the other question I heard you ask was about the part thing. Well, let's be clear. I've been all the way to the Supreme Court and my family and I, we spent over 300 and something thousand dollars in my legal fees trying to fight this case for the past five years. And now we're back in the appellate court and my attorney, um, my sisters uh, picked a law firm in Florida and um, he filed something called the Air Quorum Nobis. And the Air Quorum Nobis is... I thought it was when you emphatically are innocent, but I was told by a retired judge just recently, no, that's not what that means. What a writ of error quorum nobis mean is that the prosecutor is lying or the courts are lying or both are lying or someone's lying and, and something's not right with this. Case. And these are the issues. And that's why I have it on my website. I have my case numbers on the website all of that stuff. So like nosy people that want to go and research, they can certainly do that. Make sure you get the transcripts while you're at it. Also, you know, but so I don't have any faith in their, in their court system because I've already been to, to the Supreme court and I don't, I don't have the, the money to number one, go back to the Supreme court. And number two, like I tell my attorney all the time, I feel like I'm fighting a ghost. I'm fighting a Phantom. I'm fighting something that's not real. The wizard is not real. So why should I keep spending money and turning my wheels and keep going down the same road? So with this pardon, which is a powerful piece, um, I'm not just asking for a pardon and I'm damn sure not asking for forgiveness. 
What I'm asking for is the, the president of the United States, whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump, I'm asking the chief and commanding officer to investigate my case. I'm going public to the world asking the president to investigate my case. I know that the president cannot give me exoneration or vindication, but the president can stop this probation. The president can stop this restitution and the president can give me my money back that they took. He, he can do that. So in, in no ways am I asking for forgiveness. Number one, I'm asking to investigate my case. And have you ever like filed something with the court, like agreements or like anything uh, before you got to this step so that they could investigate? Because one thing that I saw as well with the restitution was greater than what was owed, like total losses. And I was wondering, well, how is her restitution greater than the total losses from the case? So I was politically hit. So this happened through a handshake and some phone calls. So, you know, and I've, you know, said to people in the past, I rather had went through this for a crime that I committed because there are statute codes and laws and rules to back that than have gone through all of this because I was politically hit through a handshake and a phone call. Because this handshake and this phone call go all the way to the Supreme Court. It's so many people's hands are dirty with what happened to me. And one thing I wanted to say to you as well is this did happen to you, but I have knowledge that this is happening to a lot of people where they're going to court and they're thinking that they're going to get justice. But it's nothing like what you have been told the justice system is, is, is supposed to be like. So I want to just say to you, thank you for like being a voice and doing the work that you're doing. And I'm sure that when you're on your path, you're going to find a lot of people who want to join you in this fight because it's happening to a lot of people. Yeah, this is not the first case that I heard when it's dealing with uh, mortgage fraud where someone was just a realtor. And it was the mortgage company that was approving the loans. And somehow they got mixed up in it. And the mortgage company is exactly that, a company, a corporation. No individual held responsible. But you as an individual, a retailer, uh, bears the burden and wind up going to jail for that. Um, the NAACP, civil rights organization over 20 years old, um, made significant strides civil rights era, um, not doing much today. You know, um, I don't, I can't tell you the last time they did anything of prominence, right? Um, that organization pretty much left you high when you was a prominent member as well as had a prominent position. You want to talk about that? The only thing that I, I have to say about that is I heard rumors of them not doing what they should be doing for our community, but I just couldn't imagine. Um, and me as a, a Buddhist, we look for the beauty in everything. We look for the 
changes in, in everyone. And when it started unfolding before me, it blew my mind. But by that time, it was too late. You know, they got they were able to use me to build momentum and go behind closed doors, cut deals with the banks and and not do anything to the families that were illegally evicted from their homes or foreclosed on. So you you tell me what what that sound like to you. Yeah, and I want the world to know what the NAACP did to me. I want the world to know what the state of Maryland did to me. And I want the world to know what the Department of Justice did to me. Now, when they arrested me at trial, they said that I was um, a terrorist and they said that I was ISIS. And family kept calling the national NAACP. They were saying, we don't know who that is. Um, we never heard of her before. Um, let's take your name and number. Someone will call you back. No one will call them back. So it ran that deep. So now at this point, that's personal. Mm. So was it a, a situation of learn your place? Like, what do you think? Why do you think that they came so hard at you over something that seems like anyone who was doing any basic um, checks and balances, check and balances would discover like what you discovered so why do you think they was coming so hard what do you think it's a bigger um plot that they were involved in and you just uncovered too much as far as the NAACP is concerned or well, overall as far as the NAACP, I feel like they was playing ball because someone tougher stronger than them wanted them to go along with whatever I'm saying your initial arrest and your, the initial charges that you received. I'm wondering why the government and why the system came at you so hard doing something that most, is like anyone have discovered. The most powerful men was calling me, telling me to go back on the news to recant my, my, my stories of these illegal foreclosures that was happening in the Black in the state of Maryland. Not only was I getting those phone calls, but I was also getting phone calls on how much did I want to stop. And for me, there was no way I was going to sell my people out. It was just no way that, and there's it, a whole lot of us that look like, a, look, look like us that sell our, our own out. To me, talk, that's disgusting. Talk about it. Yeah, that's that's disgusting. It's so many people that that look like us that are in positions to assist and they don't. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah, I, I will say this, right? Anytime that you are doing the work and you're serving our people as you was doing, helping them with uh, literacy and empowering themselves because owning a home is ownership and you could be economically empowered by that. That's how rich, well, that's how white folks got rich. You know, the, the, the basis of land and ownership will get you that monetary that everybody realizes. You doing that for 800 people is something that racist white supremacists don't want to see. So I'll, and, and I, and I hope, continue to fight and whatever we can do 
over here at Necessary Blackness Podcast to assist you in getting the word out. We would definitely do that. I know you have right now. Um, Mar Marcia is going to ask a question, but before we leave, I want you to tell us about that petition, how we can get folks to stop that, and, and what we can do to really assist and help you. Well, so first basically, of all, hold on. First, I want to say, excuse me, sister. The first thing I want to say is the NAACP is part of that white supremacy. So oh, let's absolutely. be clear about that. And people who have membership cards, they need to burn them and get rid of them and not give them another dime. And if the NAACP National want to call me, you know how to contact me. Mm. You know, I, I have a saying that uh, the NAACP P stands for Negro Always Action Caucasian Commission. You know, and we know that this, it, it initially it was started as a white organization. The founders of it was white. And um, the majority of the funding that they received outside of their core membership is from white philanthropists. So we we, we know who they are. But go ahead, Marcia, you want to ask a question? Sorry, sister, I apologize. Oh, well, no, well, when he said I was going to ask the question, he actually asked you the question. <laughs> so uh, yeah. If you could just go ahead and explain to people about your exoneration and what we can do to assist you in uh, your efforts. Um, my website is carmenstory.org, and I have a petition on it. And I'm asking people to sign the petition and this petition, again, is about asking the, the president of the United States to uh, investigate my case and then under Article 72, grant me a full pardon. But the funny thing about it is, and what I'm experiencing is uh, with people that look like us that are going to the website and going to the petition, they have literally told me that they're not going to sign my petition because I'm a Trump supporter. But on my website or on my petition, it says nothing about Donald Trump. It says nothing about him. It says to the president of the United States, number one. And number two, I'm not Democrat or Republican, mm. libertarian, you know, and um, so I'm not for e either one of either one of them. However, as an American, as a Adolf indigenous American woman. I have a right to ask the president of the United States to look into his Department of Justice and investigate my case on what they've done to me. And 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 that's the main thing. And but like I said, a lot of my people are saying for some reason they see Donald Trump. That that's all they see. And he's not listed anywhere on there. And that's not fair. It's like the pain and suffering that I went through. And People don't want to support me because they are blinded and they only see Donald Trump when his name is not listed. Biden's name is not listed. Well, his ass will be out in a couple of days, <laughs> hopefully. But listen, I, are you familiar with change.org? They do a yeah. lot of petitions. Have you put a petition on that website? Yeah, the petition. Yeah, it's on it's on that uh, website. Um, yeah. All right. I'm gonna. T I haven't seen the petition. I'm gonna take a look at. We're gonna sign up for it. Um, I want you to give everybody your information one more time. Um, the website, your social media, everything to know about you. 
Uh, can I put it in the chat real quick? Um, I think the chat is a private chat. So okay. I, yeah. So it's Carmen's story, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-S-T-O-R-Y uh, dot org. Right, dot org. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, CarmenStory.org. Make sure y'all go out and y'all log on to that site. Y'all support this sister. Um, because we got to fight racism and white supremacy on all fronts. Um, what was done to the system there is definitely an injustice that shouldn't have been done. Um, we're dealing with this and we will continue to deal with it, especially we don't fight back, especially when situations like this arise and we don't stand up as a people and demand justice. Um, I see anything you want to close it out, say anything in your last closing words? Uh, I just want to thank you once again for sharing your story. And I think it's uh, great that you're bringing attention to this issue that a lot of people are having with the judicial system. So I just want to thank you again for coming on the program. Thank you. I appreciate you, sister. I appreciate you, brother. Um, Absolutely. And, and in closing, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? Or do you want to say in your last closing word? Um, I have two things to say real quickly. And the first thing is, and, and the, 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 the main thing is, you know, I remember growing up and my mother would read the, the Bible to us, to my siblings and myself. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, then we would talk about what happened in school and all of that kind of stuff and have laugh and family time. But, and here it is 2020, we're getting ready to go into 2001. I think it's important that we sit down as a family and start learning about criminal law. Mm. If we don't know their language, if we don't know their dialogue, there's no, no way that we can beat them. And that was one of the things that Malcolm X said, understand their language. So when they come knocking at your door, we can have a dialogue. That's number one. And then the most important thing is stop taking these pleads for stuff that you didn't do or stop taking these pleas for something small and then they offering you 30 years for something so small, like you have to fight. You know, there's a 98% conviction rate. So 2% of us did not take a plea. A half a percent of us uh, won in trial and those are white men usually. And then the, the one and a half percent, which is me, they bust us in the head and throw us in jail. So mm -hmm. if I had to do it all over again, there's no way that I would lie on myself to say that I did something. And I have always been an advocate for our youth, for financial literacy, and now for the mass incarceration of our people is my main focus now. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Are you familiar with jury nullification? Jury nominations? No, nullification. What does that mean? That is where basically the jury uh, agrees that we're not going to convict this person. And, you know, this is something that a lot of black people need to practice, like black people that goes on jury, because sometimes it only take one person. And um, I think we're going to have to start doing that. That's another tactic. They, they, um, there's case law on it. Read it up in like the law. 
But jury nullification, family, for those that are out there, you call the jury duty and you know that there's justice. It just takes one person to say, nah, we're not going to convict her. And that's another uh, strategic tactic that we have to come at this racist system with. And um, we got to bring it down to its knees. But more importantly than anything, we need to abolish this system of racism and white supremacy. So once again, Dr. Carmen Johnson, I appreciate you. Anything that we can do over here at Necessary Blackness Podcast, me and Marcia, we on board. Um, you got a hell of a story. This is not going to be the uh, first or the last time that we. Okay. All right. I, 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 you guys. Thank you. Right.